So uh, I guess this is the uh, graveyard slot, right? Well, um, I'm part of a Christian meditation group, and one of the things that we do in that group, um, we meet on an evening, on a Wednesday. Do come and join us, half past six in St. Mary Aldermary, it's in the city. Um, to stop us falling asleep on each other and dribbling on each other's shoulders, we do something before we start our meditation practice, and it's something we call a stretch, a wriggle, and a yawn. So I'm going to encourage you to join me in that. Now, I will embarrass myself by demonstrating it first. It kind of goes like this. So... That's kind of the drill, and what I'm thinking is that this is a bit of a sedentary time, and in order for it not to be the literal graveyard slot, I would just encourage you all, if you feel able to, and, and you can physically do it if you want to do it, if you stand up, and we're going to do a stretch, a wriggle, and a yawn together. Okay, so, something like this. So, stretch, a wriggle, oh, and a yawn. Well done, everybody. Okay, so I think... I think maybe for at least five minutes, some of you will be awake for, for this talk. Thank you for indulging me in that way. Um, welcome to this uh, session. I'm, I'm really excited by the day. I've heard such wisdom and deep personal experiences shared within the, uh, the seminars that I've been to. And it's been an enormous encouragement to me to see the appetite, I think, for people to, to share their experience, but also really to to encourage us as church and say that we, we've done some great things. There have been some, some painful stories that have been shared, but we can continue to do better. But I think uh, the question that's interesting, I think, to look at within this is how can we build a church where everyone belongs? So that's the title of this talk today. And um, if you could just move on to the slide, there's a quote here from, uh, from Jean Vanier. And Jean Vanier, who... Um, is uh, the found, many of you probably know, uh, he's the founder of Large Communities. He's a theologian and uh, incredible man, um, amazing impact in terms of his life and ministry. And Jean says these words, a community comes about when people are no longer hiding from one another, no longer pretending or proving their value to one another. Now, at livability, we're really interested in this question of uh, what can make communities places uh, where everybody feels they can participate and truly belong. And so as a charity, we're seeking to share the stories of churches that know a thing or two um, about welcoming the stranger or caring for the least of these. However you phrase it, we're interested in inclusion. And as I reflected on my own experience of um, 13 years in a small urban church, I knew there was a rich well to draw from. So this is what frames uh, the talk today. And so I hope it's a gentle session for you all to hear some stories of people that I found uh, personally inspiring and some of the lessons I've learned on the way about community, what it is. So um, my life uh, in All Saints predates my work with livability by some years. And, um, but there's this amazing crossover, really, between uh, this theme of looking at what, what makes communities thrive, because I've been looking at it in my context for a while. And um, being in this little church has helped me really stretch myself. And it's challenged and invited me to um, a deeper love for the people I do church with and for the neighborhood. Now, this little church didn't set out to become a church for people on the margins. But like many communities, that's just what we are. It's not an outreach to someone. It's just where we find ourselves in our context. So... 
Here's a little bit of context um, to the next slide. Um, and in a way, this should probably be the, the subtitle of this talk. What being in a tiny and often chaotic church in the center of a huge and changing city can teach us all about an inclusive community. Now, I realize some of you may be in similar churches, but many of us won't be. But I feel that there is learning from this, I hope, that we all might be able to, uh, to enjoy. So um, the image on the right shows um, the neighborhood. And um, now, I'm not sure if anybody has seen uh, those Lego kits of iconic buildings, like the Empire State Building. I think there might be a big band. A lot of them American, but they're, they're new Lego kits that show um, iconic buildings. Well, I'm hoping to get one made of the Bamerton Estate. Um, it already looks a lot like Lego, as you can see. Anyway, the picture's up there, because that's where I live. So we're on uh, the edge of this huge estate in King's Cross. And, um, it's, um, it's a, a miniature village, if you like. Um, there are 737 individual households. And uh, it's the kind of place that when I arrived in the area 13 years ago, um, seemed to have a reputation. And then you pause for a minute, and it doesn't take you long to realize that every estate has what they call a reputation. And you see, I've come to realize that for many of us um, who grew up in Middle England, um, who may not have grown up in social housing, uh, the majority of our impressions of estates are formed by watching the bill. And, and essentially, this means that they're places where the police go to chase people. And this is rather than places where people live and build their homes. Now, I'm sort of trivializing things a bit, but you know, I'm sure you can see where I'm coming from on this. And um, the other thing I found is that um, on living there, as I fielded calls from every new visitor who always gets lost trying to find my front door, uh, for those who don't live there, it can feel like the architecture isn't welcoming, um, particularly to people from the outside. Um, people look upon it as perhaps like a gated community without the wealth or the neighborhood without the watch. And it might be hard to look upon those blocks there and see much of the life and the soul and the character of the people that live there. And the people, of course, uh, the majority, the vast majority of which are not being chased through the estate by the police, but people are doing life here, of course. And some of it, some of these, my neighbors, are doing it very well in many aspects. And inevitably, in any large density social housing, there are also complex issues. So naturally, it's reflected in our church. And I was chatting to a lady called Sandra in my church the other day, um, who um, I think may, some days I feel that she might even love my church more than I do. And I thought she'd be a really good person to gauge what might be a, a fair description to bring to you um, of our congregation. And so I said to her gingerly, I said, do you think, Sandra, it would be fair to say that the majority of the people who are part of All Saints have had harder than average lives? And her response, are you kidding me? Went quite a long way to helping me realize that I didn't really need to gild the lily in this respect. So what does this mean? Now, what, what is this harder than average life that I gingerly offered? Well, um, I would say the majority of us have struggled with emotional and mental health problems. Some of us have also got long-term illness, illnesses, physical illnesses. Um, some will live with disabilities, and that probably forms a part of the picture. Um, but I've also found that many of us are highly resilient in the face of often relentless physical and practical problems. 
You know, there's a depth of resilience there that I find amazing and inspiring. And often people have very limited resources to, to deal with these things. Now, some people have uh, been out of work for a long period of time, and inevitably, that does make life harder. And um, I fa in fact, I remember one particular prayer meeting a few years ago, a friend of mine prayed these words, please, Lord, just send us someone with a job. And some of us, it has to be said, have experienced violence and, and some trauma in our lives and have left situations where that's been a constant. Now, most of us know how to cook and we know how to party like it's 1999. Uh, some of us do this to excess. And some of us have also found, I would say, the liberation of recovery, while some of us have not made that step yet. We draw from Italy, Nigeria, Jamaica, Trinidad, Ireland, Scotland, and many of the remainder of us were born and bred here. I'm unusual in that respect. Um, all of us can walk to our church, and some of us only just about walk these days. And on an average morning, um, there might be about 20 of us on a good day. We are economically unsustainable. 85% of us are over the age of 60. Almost all of us are single, and 85% of us are women. So yes, I'm very popular with the ladies, but then they don't have much competition, and they're all mainly over 60. So I think you're starting to get the picture. Now, on the surface, you might look at my neighborhood, and you might read the stats, you might read the child poverty figures and the health indicators, and here, what, all I, what I've described as, um, you know, maybe something that could be seen as a bit of a neighborhood in trouble. And this question of community building, maybe you're thinking, these people probably need some help. Send it in. You see, as it turns out, though, in the art of community building, we've got three distinctive assets that I think makes the job a lot easier than you might think. Now, at livability, this is one of the first things we think about with any community that we work with. And to start with, rather than the question of what are the problems that this community needs solving, we want to know what are the things that make this community work well? What are the things that are unique that this group of people uh, can bring to the table? So if I was to ask that question of All Saints Barnsbury, here's what I see. So on the next slide, you'll, uh, you'll see this. So, Firstly, um, stability. Um, now, there's one thing I find is a massive aid to community building, and particularly in a city like London, many of us can struggle when this um, foundational element of life is not there and life is very transitory. Now, on my estate, upward mobility hasn't fully trickled down. So it has to be said that for a lot of people, their life is here. And there's an interesting blessing in the fact that people are sticking around. Life is happening there. People aren't passing through on my neighborhood. Even though all around us, there's a huge amount of footfall and traffic and people who are there very temporarily before moving on. Not in our case. Now, what, what's been interesting is when I've talked to people, um, now, in many cases, some people do want to move. They feel the pressure. Um, we've not got great air quality where I live, and there are lots of other practical issues that I'm, I'm sure you can imagine. But uh, more often than not, I certainly find people in my congregation really want to be where they live. 
this is our home. This is where we are. This is where we, where would we want to be anywhere else? Why would we do that? And that alone changes the dynamic. And it really means, I think, that um, people are doing life. And um, as a result of people choosing to do life in one place and know that that's kind of it, um, it does make it easier for us to seek the welfare of the city, as we read in Jeremiah. They're not thinking a better life is happening elsewhere. Now, the second part of this is, um, is diversity. Now, there's a quote I'll start with from Desmond Tutu, really simple but um, I think pithy quote. We are different so that we can know our need for one another, for no one is ultimately self-sufficient. So we are different so that we can know our need for one another, for no one is ultimately self-sufficient. As a church, we are all so, so different. Now, when I walk into church, there's maybe, literally at the moment, there's one couple in my own demographic of what I'd probably call white professional similar age. Um, now, I know, uh, maybe for you, it's, it's easy, it's easier often to spend time with people like me. And I, I enjoy that. I've got to be honest, it's, it's really easy to do it. But there's no question that when people who are different make the effort to get to know each other, there can be some amazing fruit and incredible depth of relationship. So I, don't, I want to be too careful about not painting too pretty a picture. So it, it's not really that much like the famous 1970s advert that te wanted to teach the world to sing. You know the one I'm talking about. Um, it can be really hard work. You know, it's not kind of a boutique diversity. Um, and it's obvious that this doesn't come out with some really renewed and focused intentions. But it, the truth is that there's something special that's required of us um, to build community with those who are that bit different. And when everybody's different, it's very, it's much easier, I find, not to feel excluded. You know, I'm not in the corner of a church thinking, well, there are all those kind of um, married couples there and doing really well, and there's me on my own, single person, it's hard. I'm just looking at everybody and thinking, this is the family of God. So that's a, an asset and a gift that we have. In turn, I think, um, when maybe we can't take for granted that people see the world as we do, we have to hold more gaps. And uh, we are encouraged, I think, to, to offer more grace. There's an invitation. And uh, perhaps as part of that, we have to assume less of others and have to listen more. So that diversity, I think, is a gift in building community. Thirdly, um, honesty. Now, um, if there's one thing that makes me stereotypically British, um, it's my avoidance of conflict at all costs, to my detriment often. Now, it has to be said, there's a lot of disagreement in our church, um, and occasionally shouting. And um, yeah, I mean, there are stories, I could tell you. I, I won't, but there are stories. But one thing I've, I've found to realize by being in this kind of environment is that when conflict is out there, it can be mediated. But when it's buried, it makes it very hard, which is, in my general experience, the British way, you know. Clearing the air, in fact, tends to be a great way to build community. And uh, I don't believe that anybody is going to um, leave the church that I'm part of saying, um, yeah, we, we were just ready to move on. But actually, there are big issues that it's been very difficult to speak of and address. Um, I tend to find that people are very vocal when there is a problem. So these are three assets um, that uh, I can touch on. Unfortunately, the third one didn't come up on the, the reformatted slide. Stability, diversity, and honesty. 
Um, now, uh, you might be thinking at this point, that's very nice for you, um, but how do I create community in my context? That's very different, uh, entirely different. Um, you talk about these three assets of stability, diversity, and honest, honesty, but we're, we're unstable, we're all the same, and like you, we're conflict avoidant. What have you got for us? Well, here's the thing. At Livability, we're all about trying to help you work out how you build community in your context. So I'm going to have a go at uh, trying to show from our learning what we've we found on that one. So the next slide, please. Um, the first thing I want to say is um, in order to really try and find a way of building inclusive community, it's really important to help the voices on the edge find their way to the center help the voices on the edge find their way to the center. So this takes time and understanding, but I found in an environment of love and forgiveness, it can work out. So you'll see on the left, there's a lovely lady there um, who I know very well, whose name is Cherokee, and Cherokee grew up in my neighborhood. And um, she made it very clear. She said, I'm really happy for, to sh for you to show my picture, but um, it's really important I'm not smiling because I'll look too bold. But let me tell you, I've got this, in what's a fairly serious photo of Cherokee, um, you'll have to take my word that she's a person of a deeply gentle spirit. And um, when she prays for you, you know about it. And she has a huge heart, a deep patience for others, and a real gift of gratitude. And it's also true that on some days, um, her daily battle uh, with anxiety and depression is overwhelming and paralyzing. And there have been many, many months for her where her depression has meant that she felt completely unable to get out of bed even. Now, that's not been for some time, but it's still part of her daily battle. That's the picture of her ongoing struggle. And with Cherokee, like many of us, um, I find that she just benefits from regular reminders that God loves her, delights in her. And, and longs for her to live an abundant life. And I find that those messages are just need so much repeating for all of us, particularly when you find yourself overwhelmed by negative thoughts. So in leading the service one week, coming back to Cherokee, I was thinking, what is a way in which we can um, connect to our sense of deep gratitude? What's a way that we can do that together? And uh, what's a way in, we can, way in which we can kind of make gratitude concrete. So I started um, the service with a, an A1 sheet of paper. And uh, on it, I asked, um, I think we've, we kind of vary. We sometimes have one young, young lady who's age 10 who comes into the congregation. Sometimes we have a few other children who come in. Anyway, um, she came in and I asked her to write the word blessed on this A1 piece of paper. So it's big and bold, her best neat handwriting. And so um, I then said to people, okay, I'm just going to play a, a short film of some people talking about what they felt like when they heard the word blessed. And so sort of it's ordinary people, ordinary stories thinking about this word blessed. And following um, that little invitation, I said, I'd just like to come up and hold the sign and share the ways in which you might feel blessed or a particular time when you did. Just no more brief than that. And so here's the thing. Cherokee was the first to stand up. Now, I'm not used to her, even in our small church, being the first to respond to any invitation to share. 
But what she shared was incredibly vulnerable because it was about her struggles, um, but also the thanks that she felt for the support that she had from her mother, who doesn't usually come with her to church, but did that morning. And the thing is about that, she shared that story, um, and I think we all recognize what was happening here. Um, in her vulnerability, she set a really high bar for what was to follow. And the next person that stepped up, and it's just really, I find it really moving just to remember this, is a lady who uh, we know who is in and out of church and uh, regularly hospitalized with mental health issues and um, uh, has, again, stood there with the sign and, and said, look, things are hard, but they, uh, they've been worse, and I'm thankful. And I think that started a trickle and a cue, and um, essentially we were in a space where everybody had something to share as they were holding this really simple sign with the word blessed on it. And there was something um, in the power of this very simple moment for me as well. And then what I was able to share um, was that I feel really blessed to be part of this church because in these moments, it takes me out of my own self-absorption when I can hear a way in which the people around me who on the surface have less but have a great gift feel blessed. So it's important to have an element of community building that ensures that those who are the people who might seem to be the least vocal um, or the least included have a route to have their voice heard. And it occurs to me as, as I reflect on this that um, you've got to be in a community where you feel your voice is truly heard and valued if you're going to want to use it really, in any context. If your home community is a space where your, your voice is not heard, then that will have a negative impact, just as it will if you're given spaces to open that up. You might not even know that you have a voice unless someone has pointed out that that voice is special and unique and has power. So as a result of this recognition, we spend a lot of time giving room in our services for contributions. And this, we hope, really develops a sense um, that the person in the front is leading the thinking rather than necessarily always giving the answers, that we, we can do this together. And speaking of um, the, the voice from the front, and this is really something that I've seen as a theme throughout, this, throughout today and Will's um, keynote earlier on, um, and also in the seminars, um, in terms of this question of, uh, of vulnerability, we we need to recognize that um, if the voice from the front is always one of competence and strength, then our default message will be that this is the model, that this is what we should aspire to. You should be competent and strong to be a follower of Jesus. So we need to consistently choose participation over perfection if we want our church to be truly shaped by those who come with different perspectives and life experience, different talents and, and different needs. So on the next slide, point number two. Um, another thing I've learned from this church is that we need to help everybody know they have a gift and a contribution to make. Now, it might take time to see it, but it's important to look for it. Now, this is Dorothy on the left. And um, for Dorothy, a very difficult period late in life um, led to um, real distress and a period of hospitalization. 
And um, at that point, I'd been working within homelessness for a long, very long time, 20 years, often people were very vulnerable, and often I'd found people who were um, hospitalized late in life, found it often very hard to come through. And so I had that knowledge um, when I visited Dorothy, and I was thinking, well, the best we can do is, is to try and manage, manage this and support her the best we can. But Dorothy here um, has an indomitable spirit. And so when she started to make a recovery, um, she pointed out to me that at the end of the road where the church was, that there is a care home for people who are living with dementia. And um, she told me at that point, we have to be there. And um, as we thought about this together, we realized that there was an invitation that we, we really needed to respond to. And it would have been easy to, uh, to write this one off. And I have to be honest, I was quite tempted. Um, but her resilience and her persistence was hard to argue with. And as we stepped into this invitation, we really did see the hand of God in that. Um, as Dor Dorothy, with the help and support of others, helped us connect with those who were living with the very daily difficulties of dementia and bringing perhaps a recognition and, uh, of God in the present. Now, perhaps Dorothy could have been written off as being vulnerable herself, um, but we could see that she had an important gift to bring. And the thing is here is that it wasn't just that she was the inspiration, but she continued to be the driving force and the passion behind that. Further on, something I've seen um, is that as we start to see um, these gifts arise in our communities, we can often um, find them in contexts that are surprising. So we're a church, I guess, that has um, generally a reputation for being unafraid to roll our sleeves up in the community. And um, in that context, in serving with others, we found great gift as we've partnered perhaps with churches that are, are maybe better resourced, full of younger, maybe people who've, um, who are professional. And there's an incredible gift, I think, as each um, person has recognized their part to play, whether it's been night shelters we've been involved in or community events. And just something else that we've been involved in. We, um, as a church, we piloted uh, Livability's happiness course. Now, um, if you don't know it, it's a tool to help our, our churches connect to communities by helping um, run groups that really focus on well-being and help people really look at how they're living their life. And it can lead to real, real change. It can be a real catalyst for change. And so we, in our area, as we piloted this, we brought together the broadest spread of people we could find in our locality. And, um, you know, that was right from the, the core of my church to also those, um, you know, that essentially people who weren't working, were retired, people who may have been in recovery. And then on the other end of the scale, um, people who, you know, were, had currently professional careers, an NHS manager, someone who's a BBC journalist. And what we found in that group was a real richness that came through giving those voices equal space. Relationships were built. Genuine relationships were built within that. And within perhaps, you know, again, like many um, inner London boroughs, we've got huge, um, huge challenge of a variety of different income levels and a polarization in that. Again, in this little space, we were able to find a way of making community. So, 
you might be a church that's program driven and you know that certain jobs have to happen at certain times. Otherwise, the whole thing will collapse. I think many of us might be in situations like that. But I think even within that setting, we need to pause for a moment. Are there ways in which we can create space for input for those who may not be able to meet those requirements of reliability and regularity? What are the gaps? What are the gaps to include those voices and those influences? So we not just find people, find a way of slotting people in, but those voices and experiences can start to shape the way that we do church. And the next slide, picking up this theme of vulnerability. Leading with vulnerability provides permission for everybody to feel at home. Leading with vulnerability provides permission for everybody to feel at home. So I think one of the things we've learned is that it's the only sustainable way for us to be in our setting. And that in appropriately sharing our limitations and our struggles, um, we hope to inspire each other to continue on this hopeful path as we follow Jesus towards restoration. And um, the next slide has just got a quote from uh, a writer called um, Anne Lamott. And I interviewed Anne uh, last year um, for an article. And these are the words that Anne said. She said, if ministers told a deep truth in one sermon that they have depression too, or have thought about suicide, or use booze or food or workaholism to self-medicate and mood alter, they would be astonished by the outpouring of gratitude from their congregants, the tears of joy and relief. I recognize, of course, that we all have different boundaries and it's appropriate that we look after ourselves in our relationships with each other. And these will vary and will be different depending on our individual character and our past experience. But I've come to see that there's a downside to excessive self-protection and leadership, particularly if you're trying to create a place where everybody is welcome. Now, one of the things it does, I think, is it perpetuates the lie that everybody believes that you need to have it together and that in turn, you never give yourself permission to fall apart when you actually need to. And I speak as someone who felt that I was the person who had to hold it together, which became problematic when I reached a point after a series of significant personal losses where I couldn't. And at this point, a friend of mine said to me from outside the church, some words of wisdom. She said, if your church is a church where you can't fall apart, it's not the place for you right now. And so, Here's what happened. The journey for me was one of meeting God in my own powerlessness. And this was the same place that many of the fellow members of my church had arrived at the church. They'd set foot in the door in that place. And so the gift of prayers for those same people became a, a deep source of comfort. And now I recognized that my congregation couldn't fix me and that I would need help elsewhere to find a path to healing. But I started to become more aware of the gift I could offer in others, in letting others in and letting go. And I found that if you feel that you have to have it together and project this, 
then the chances are that those in your church who have struggles will find it difficult to really feel at home there. And they'll find it difficult to uh, really be part of what's going on because their perception, the bar's way beyond them. It's just much too high. So an encouragement then to share appropriately but our struggles with honesty. Because I think I've found that it makes for an honest community that can genuinely celebrate transformation and doesn't perpetuate unhelpful expectations of our leaders. And my final point in terms of um, looking to build um, a church where everybody can be included. The next slide, please. Um, I've had to do quite a lot of this, and that's embracing the chaos. And I, I'd really commend that to, to you. Embrace the chaos and don't be afraid to love. And uh, there should be a caveat, of course, with that, is, as, as best as we can. And, but I think that this statement, in a way, um, underpins all of this um, little talk this afternoon, in that perhaps it's so basic, and perhaps could be, um, I could have got away without saying it, but what I've recognized is that a lot of people in my community have been through a good amount of trauma in their lives, and many show the scars of this. You know, there are complexities, and we see the fruit of it. And some of this might result in some lifestyle behaviors that are associated with it that clearly need healing and need change. But honestly, um, the bigger issue there is often a need for a healing of identity at the root of this. So I found that the first place to start isn't in necessarily addressing the lifestyle issue unless it's so clearly soaked in love. Instead, what we found is the need for compensation of the consistent reminder of the depth of mercy, the limitless amount of love that's available from God. And I know, I don't know about you, but I know I personally need to be reminded of this. So that I think if you've been dealt a tougher hand in life than I have, I'm pretty sure that I need to amplify that even more. And in being faithful to modeling this as a community, we often find ourselves trying to look for the signs. They might be large signs of change, but more often, they're a smaller sign of what it means to step into the freedom of life in God that might be unhindered by the hurts, aware of the scars, but not ultimately defined by them. Now, these are the small signs that we can celebrate together. And we start to recognize that as a community, as we participate in God's transforming work in our lives that we become more and more intertwined and I hope that I've suggested to you that what we're looking to model and I would encourage you all in different ways to find an angle to do this is um, we're looking to build a church where your participation is far more important than your perfection far more important and if you're bringing your whole self to the table, then we could ask for no more than that. So part of what we have to do is letting go of that perfectionism that can uh, really stifle us and tell us that everything has to be great because it's more important for everybody to be part of it. And it's more important for everybody to have a go. So rounding up for the final, final slide, 
your four-step guide, as it were, um, pointers that I hope might help you think a little bit about how you can be part of developing the church that we all want to be, where everyone belongs. And uh, perhaps those of you who are really on this journey and uh, you might want to use these things as a, a little discussion point to bring back. But these four things of helping voices at the center, uh, on the edge find their way to the center, working to help everybody find their gift and their contribution, leading with vulnerability to help everybody feel at home, and finding a way to embrace the, the chaos and not being afraid to love. So, as a livability, we'd love to talk to you. Um, we'd love to connect with your community. And uh, we want to part, be part of those ongoing conversations. So if you haven't already, do visit our table and, uh, and sign up with us and chat with us. Um, and I hope that um, you will have found just one or two gems in these reflections from a very specific and, for me, wonderful place that I've, I've been privileged to be drawn to and be part of that may inspire you in your setting. And I just want to end with this quote um, on the next slide, uh, another one from Jean Vanier. Love doesn't mean doing extraordinary or heroic things. It means knowing how to do ordinary things with tenderness. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of the afternoon. <laughs>